Job 38, 1 through 15. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since you know. Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? And the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with the doors, when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it, and set up bolts and doors. And I said, Thus far you shall come, but no further, no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It's changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. We bless your name, holy God. We thank you for your word. We pray now that the Spirit who inspired these words will illumine our understanding and will grant power in their proclamation. For Christ's sake, amen. Sometimes you boys and girls get into an um, argument with a brother or a sister or a friend, maybe even with your parents, and you know you always want to have the last word, don't you? One more thing needs to be said. You've got one more point to be made. If they just understood that last point, that doesn't stop when we grow up, unfortunately. In our marriages and in our relationships, we get in these very intense discussions. And, you know, we always want to have the last word. We've got to make our point one more time. And we know what's behind that. It's pride. But there are occasions when the last word is very important. So some of you young people have been involved in debating. And in debating, the affirmative gets the last word. They get to wrap it up, make their point, and drive it home. And that's proper. It's lawful. A judge in a court, in a trial, gets the last word. He gets to summarize for the jury. And he can even direct their thoughts a good bit by his last word. Or in the sentencing, the last word respect to that guilty party. And so there are times when the last word is appropriate, but there's one person and all times when the last word is appropriate, and that is the Lord God, anytime he speaks. The Lord God now, as he speaks to us through his word, 
He should always have the last word. He's God. Let every man else be a liar. The last word belongs to God. And that's what God teaches us through Job chapter 38. You know the story of Job, the great trials that God and his wise providence uh, uh, brought into his life through the instrument of Satan and wicked men and natural forces. And how Job and his friends wrestled in with the reality of what's really going on. His friends bought into that health, wealth, and prosperity. They were the very first ones. Health, wealth, and prosperity theologians. If you're good, God blesses you. And so if you're having trouble like this, Job, you must be really a wicked man. We thought you were a godly man, but you have to be wicked. And they were so convinced of that, they started inventing sins and ascribing them to Job. Of course, Job has a problem because in his conscience he knows he's not a wicked man. He knows... God's testimony concerning him is, is the testimony of his conscience that he is uh, blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. But you know, he's also tinged with this theology. Why is he suffering like this? And so he begins to say, in defense of himself against his friends, that God's not acting quite right. He says God's become his enemy. God shakes him like a rag doll. God, in fact, is unjust in how he deals with Job. Now, Job's friends have asked for God to speak on their behalf, and Job has silenced them by the end of his speeches in chapter 31. And Elihu then, a prophet of God, steps forward and begins to correct the situation by showing Job and the others how they've spoken wrongly about God. And what Elihu, he's the warm-up act. Elihu is preparing Job and those other men now for God himself to come and speak the last word. The men wanted God to speak, but Job himself has asked for an audience with God. Oh, that I could stand before him. Oh, that I could lay out my case. And that's exactly what God grants to Job here in the last chapters of this book. So in 38 and 39... God catechizes Job with a series of questions that break him and humble him. He begins to come to repentance, but God's not finished. So then in chapters 40 and 41, God sets before him these two remarkable creatures, the behemoth and the Leviathan, so often called hippopotamuses and whales and crocodiles, but that's not what they are. Tonight, kids, I'm going to tell you all about the Leviathan. I'm going to answer a very important question that many of you have asked your parents and you've asked your teachers. We're going to learn about the answer to that question from the Leviathan. But God now comes to speak to Job. Elihu's introduced to him. He's pointed to this storm that's coming from the north with flashes of lightning. And this. He said, God's in the storm. And so what do we see now in uh, 38.1? The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So Elihu steps aside. He says, Job, you asked for it. Here is God. <laughs> Not quite what Job wanted or expected. But as God comes now to Job, he, by his presence, by his unanswerable questions, he humbles Job through the revelation 
of who he is and what he does. By his awesome presence, by his unanswerable questions, he humbles us by the revelation of who he is and what he does. So we'll look at two things here in these 15 verses. We'll first look at God's awesome challenge and then at God's unanswerable questions. Only the first few. I said all of 38 and 39 have these questions. We're going to look at the first few unanswerable questions. Well, first, the challenge. Verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Job, as I said, got his audience. God rolls them in the chariot of this storm, whirling and lightning and thunder. And yet God speaks with such a clear voice that Job can hear his voice in the midst of the chaos. And God speaks. God often came that way in the Old Covenant in the lightning and the thunder to demonstrate His transcendent majesty and His, his awful power. That's how he came at Mount Sinai to Moses and children of Israel, isn't it? That's how he came to Elijah in the first visit at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Often the prophets, we read of God coming in judgment in this fashion. And now he comes before Job and this Job's friends and God comes in this awful display of transcendent majesty But it's tempered. You might not notice it right off. But it's a very important word in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord, Jehovah, spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. That's not a name by which Job would have thought of God. It's a name we know from Exodus chapter 3. Its meaning was revealed to Moses um, many, many years later. Now, Job knew God primarily by the name El Shaddai, God Almighty, the name of the patriarchs, uh, the name by which the patriarchs knew God. And chapters 3 through 37, either Elohim or El Shaddai, the names used for God, choose a little bit in introduction. But you see, and dear friends, when you read the names of God in the Bible, you know, we play biblical hopscotch. Come to the name of God, just jump over it because after all, we know the names of just stories. But never just stories. Every name of God used in every context of Scripture is used to make a specific biblical theological statement. There's always a relationship. So we saw in Genesis 1 2 yesterday that uh, he moves from, uh, uh, chapter 2, he moves from uh, referring to himself as God the Creator, Elohim. 1, 1 through 2, 3, and suddenly in 2, 4, it is Jehovah God. And why is that name used there? Because now we get introduced to the covenant of works. So when the writer by the Holy Spirit tells us that Jehovah spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, he is reminding us that though God came in such a manner to undo Job and to put him flat on his face, that it was tempered with gentleness. Love, because it's the personal God 
of the covenant in our speech. In the same way, children, when your parents have to discipline you and you know that you've done wrong, you know that in a proper sense they're angry with you, you also know they love you because they're your parents. And you know at the end of the day that what they're doing for you is best. And what God was doing for Job was best. What God does for you and me in all of our trials and all of our confrontations is always best. Isn't that what he says? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So God tempers the transcendent majesty with this revelation of covenant love and gentleness. He's tempered it even more for you and me. He doesn't come to us in the whirlwind, does he? How does he come? In swaddling clothes? As a baby? Taking to himself a human nature? God became flesh. God came in a way that would not undo us. He came in such gentle humility. He might stand alongside of us, reveal himself to us, and deliver us from that which made us his enemies, that we might be reconciled to God through the Incarnation, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus we, we know God with a level of intimacy that uh, goes far beyond what the great majority, if not all the Old Testament saints knew. So the least of us, said Jesus, is greater than John the Baptist. Because of the intimacy. Because God is our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's still. And our problem is often, as Christians, we forget that he is still, because he's unchangeable, he is this awesome, transcendent, majestic God. And after he shows the contrast in Hebrews 12 between the God of Mount Sinai and the God of the church, he then turns around and says, but he is a jealous God. He is a consuming fire. And he's not to be trifled with. Because he's gentle and kind, the temptation is to take advantage of him. To think that uh, you do not need to fear him. We'll come back to the fear of God tonight. He'll come one more time in a whirling storm at the end of the age. In the second coming, our Savior will come as a judge, not the consuming fire judge for his people because we're clothed in his righteousness. He'll come for judge for all the rest of mankind and it'll be a million times worse than what Job experienced here. And he comes with the blare of the trumpet and the shout of the archangel to call all men, all women, all boys, all girls to an accounting. There'll be a fury and a terrifying fire that shall but begin the fires of hell for everyone who's not in Christ Jesus. So Job got his audience. And with that audience, Job was indicted. We read in verse 2 that God's first question is, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's talking here about Job. Job will apply these words to himself in his words of confession. Now, how has Job darkened words without counsel? Well, in the first place, Job has spoken rashly, inconsiderately, 
And he has said that God has been an enemy, that God is unjust, that God has not been fair. He has complained then against the counsel of God, which is the judgments of God in God's providence in his life. He's not denied God. In fact, one of the remarkable things is you look at the book of Job, his faith grows. You come to uh, chapter 19, uh, where he makes the great confession of incarnation and resurrection. In chapter 28, this wonderful confession about God's wisdom. He's growing, but like you and me, there's going to be these dips. You know, all that we just always grew, but we don't, and Job didn't. And boy, when he dipped, he said some fairly unkind things about God. And God now indicts him with the rhetorical question, who is this? Now that's very important because that gets into the rest of the questions that will follow. Who do you think you are? Darkening my counsel by ignorant words. You know we do that? God reminds us here how important our words are. We don't think about that very often. Our Savior told us that we're going to be judged for every idle word. Every word of impatience and anger, every untoward word, every unedifying word, every gossip and slander, God takes words. You see, God is the word. He takes words very seriously. He takes your words very seriously. One more reason why we must have Christ's righteousness in our own. But you know, we also do what Job has done here, and, and we uh, complain against God's counsel, against God's judgments. How many times at the end of a really bad day when one more really bad thing happens and you think or say, I don't need this now. Now, you've never said that, have you? Of course we have. But do you realize whom we are insulting when we say that? God. We're insulting God. God says you didn't need it now or I wouldn't have let it happen in your life. We're darkening counsel without knowledge. You see I mean, Job's God's favorite. Job is far superior to the other three. He will intercede on their behalf. But God calls him to account, and because of God's favorite, he's had a loose tongue. Another way that, particularly in our branch of Christianity, that we contend to have counsel without knowledge is in our theological speculation. One of the reasons that we get extremes in theology with uh, free will or hyper-Calvinism is because we want to go beyond Scripture. The beauty of Calvin and the Institutes is he didn't go beyond Scripture. He was tethered to the Word of God. When you and I do theology and, and discuss theology with our friends and discuss Scripture, we need to be tethered to the Word of God because God takes seriously when we speak words that go beyond the Word that He gave to us. Same is true in your counseling. I praise God this church is committed to biblical counseling, but when we counsel either informally or when we counsel formally, we must be careful that we don't do what Job's friends did and begin to ascribe motives and causes that are unknown to us. Now, that was their problem. They, they, they had a theology that said if this is happening, then that must have happened before. And we do that. 
Or what did that person do that they're going through this now? We must not think that way. We must not counsel that way. Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? And then the challenge. Job wanted his audience. God's there. Job wanted this conversation. And so what does God do? He challenges him to a wrestling match. Verse 3. Now, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Whoa. Boys and girls, remember that they wore robes. They didn't wear clothes like ours. And so, uh, when a man was going to uh, fight in a wrestling match, or play ball, or work, or fight in, in, a, in a battle, he would pull his robe up under his belt. That becomes a figure in the Bible for getting ready for combat. Peter will use it for how we ought to think as Christians. Gird up the loins of your mind. But God's saying, all right, Job, just get ready. We're going to go toe to toe. I'm going to give you what you asked for. You have your audience. Now, I'm going to ask you, and you instruct me, Do you want to hear God say that? I mean, that's this is this is the height of irony in this section. I mean, Job never had thought about the fact that he was trying to instruct God, and, and what God is showing him with this is that's what you've been trying to do. When you complain about the course of your life, not going quite the direction you planned, then you're saying, God, let me tell you how this ought to be. And so God challenges Job. Which leads us to the second thing. And what we have here are a number of unanswerable questions. And I chose this passage because the unanswerable questions are based upon the first four days of Genesis chapter 1 in that order. And God uses what he reveals about himself in Genesis uh, 1, 1 through about 1, 19 to show us these things about himself that are so important. And he shows us four things. He shows us that he's eternal. He's omniscient. That means he knows all things. He's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. And he's wise. Because what Job needs to understand and what you and I need to understand is that we are finite and time-bound people. We are ignorant. We are impotent. And we're fools. And in fact, that's at no greater display than when people start talking about creation. Because they are pretending they can answer all these questions. And obviously, my God's asking the questions, they are unanswerable by a human being. So why these questions? The first thing God teaches is that He is eternal. It's a very simple Beginning question, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, Job, you know so much. Were you there? And God immediately, with that very simple question, takes us back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. And no, we were not there. Because the phrase in the beginning is the great dividing line between the eternal and time. 
between the perfect, infinite spiritual being and all other created spirits and matter. Time, space, everything began with the little statement, in the beginning, God created. And no creature was there when it happened. And so God is reminding us that we are time-bound, that we are finite creatures. He is in a completely different category from us. We cannot begin to imagine Him or His ways or to begin with ourselves and think about Him. Which leads to the second question that expose our ignorance. This one really burns. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Verse 4. Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know or who stretched the line on it? And that's the height of sarcasm, isn't it? We've all experienced that when some superior has had to cut us down a few notches and they've spoken to us in this way. Well, tell me, since you know all about this. Almost like a parent talking to a teenager. Tell me, since you know. All right, Job, you know so much about me. Well, let's go back here to the beginning and you tell me how I organize these things. Uh, begin to plumb the depths of my understanding. How have you ever thought about it, but if, if the orb of our planet was a different size, a different shape, I don't think it would be working the way it works. wouldn't be hanging here in its rotation around the sun. It would wobble. It would wander off or whatever. Now, God, out of his own perfect mind, knowing exactly what every dimension should be, exactly the width, the height, the depth, the weight, everything designed it. As he did every other planet and star. And it was nothing to him, it was just like that. He designed it. With his perfect measurements. Now, tell me, he says, you know about these things? And suddenly we begin to see how ignorant we are. We live here and we take all this for granted and we think we know so much and we don't know anything. Even today with all of our computers and our satellites in space, we can't answer these questions. We don't know how God did this. The folly of pretending that we do. The folly of saying, well, it's very simple. It was this big bang. <laughs> There's everything. Just moving forward into infinity. God's laughing. He's laughing. He says, tell me about it. Since you were there, surely you know. And that's true about all of God's ways for you and me. That's just one little way to illustrate our ignorance of the glorious decree and judgments of God. And then he moves on to his power. And that's where he focuses the most here. The power manifested in the creation of the earth. Who set its measurements? Verse 5. Who stretched the line on it? Verse 6. On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? Now these people didn't think that the earth was built on pillars and anything like that. This is poetic. It's a, it's a figure of speech to 
communicates stability. And God is saying, who else would have the power to hang this orb in the sky and it be perfectly stable? Who could lay a cornerstone and construct it in perfect proportion and do it by His Word? You see, and even those of us who defend six-day creation can get so caught up in the defense, the same way we can with doctrines of grace, forget about the beauty. It's just a good place to kind of lay back and think, man, God, by His Word, hung the earth in the sky and holds it together by His Word. What power! Revel in it! Is anything impossible for the God who did this? What problem you want to lay on the table that he can't handle? <laughs> yes, Job, he says, do you really know anything about this kind of power? Goes on to uh, demonstrate, now he'll move to days, um, he's still in day one, and he deals with the angels. Verse 7. When he did this, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now the morning stars, again, is a figurative expression that parallelism teaches us it's angels because Job 1 and 2 have already showed us the sons of God are the angels. So here he's just saying, Job, I made the angels. Now, they actually were there. seems to me they were made on the first day because they're singing and praising God. But he said, just think about how powerful angels are. You know, you've already gone with Satan. He's a lot more powerful than you are, Job. But all the angels are. They're superior to us in strength, intelligence, and holiness, and might, and usefulness to God at this point. And uh, God made them. Designed them and made them by His powerful Word. Holds them together. He let go of a group of them, and they fell into sin. Because that was his holy will. But they're serving him. And they're manifestations of his power. And every time they serve him, they're further manifestations of his power. You know, I'm a big fan of angels. In fact, I'm an angel protector. I'll show you my card later. And uh, that means I'll come into your house at sometime in December. And if I find that you have offended one of my high cousins with a little plastic figure hanging around places in your house, I'll yank it down. Oh, listen, they are glorious creatures. We, well, I think, I really will offend some of you now, but I think when we do that with angels, we're actually blaspheming God. He made them beautiful, glorious, majestic, servants of life. And they serve us. Remarkable. They serve the elect. They show God's power. And then he moves on. I'll get there yet today, too. And Three, he talks about water. And verse 8, who enclosed the sea with doors and bursting forth it went out from the world. He, he made all the water on day one, but he enclosed it as in a womb, held it together by the hovering of the Spirit. And then verse 9, he divided it to make the firmament when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling clothes. And then verse 10, after done that, he goes to day three, I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors and I said, 
Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud ways stop. King Canute, great Christian king in early England, wanted to teach his courtiers to quit flattering him. And so he had them carry his throne down by the sea. And he said, do you think that you could do anything, king? He was really tired of this. He, he loved God. He said, do you think I can make the sea stop? Oh, well, he didn't really want to answer the question, but he was the king. But, well, of course. I said, all right, put my throne right here. Tide's coming in. Sea, stop! They all thought he'd gone crazy. Because it didn't stop. See, I told you to stop. Keeps coming. Gets up. It gets wet. And he takes, he goes away. He says, only God is great. Don't ever ascribe to me that which belongs to God. No human being, no great scientist, no machine can control the boundaries of the sea. And it's quite remarkable, you think about it, because the water should cover all the earth. But God, as it says in Psalm 104, raised the mountains, sunk the valleys, created boundaries. Yes, there are temporary floods today and things like that, but there is a boundary set as if it had bolts and locks and it can't go any farther. God controls the great tumult. Stand on the ocean and watch it and realize the power of God that divided it and controls it. Are you humbled yet? He moves on to one more thing that shows his power, and that is the light. Verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? He made light and darkness on day one, but on day four he appointed the heavenly spirit by which he governs light and darkness. He causes the sun to rise and dawn to take place. He causes the sun to set and night to occur. And he alone can do that. You can't do it. Job couldn't do it. No body, no army of people can do it. It shows his power. But it also shows his wisdom. I, I missed this the first hour, but it's great him by Isaac uh, uh, Watts, he actually uh, uh, refers to the wisdom of God seen in the, uh, uh, the heavenly bodies. The first verse, I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day and moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. And that's the fourth thing then that God is showing here and that is wisdom. Because God wisely designed the rhythm of day and night. So day is the time of man's work. Night is the time of man's rest. Morning is a manifestation of beauty. And that's expressed so poetically in verse uh, 14. It is changed, this is the night, like clay under a seal and they stand forth like a garment. Imagine you're standing in the mountains and it's the sunrise. And before the sun rises, it's this black, monochromatic, one-dimensional. Then light begins to shine. And suddenly there begin dimensions and form. And that's like a, a stamp in clay giving form. 
And then as the light shines brighter, suddenly the, the mountains close and trees and the outcroppings of rocks and a waterfall. That's the clothing of the mountain that's made evidence by the beauty of the wisdom of God in the sunrise. But he also shows the wisdom of God as man works in day, uh, God protects man with light. Men love darkness because their deeds are evil. They do their evil deeds at night, and that's what we see here. But God brings light to protect his people. Verse 13, the wicked are shaken out of it. And verse 15, from the wicked their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. God uses light to protect his people. God uses light to dispel wickedness physically. So the uplifted arm is broken and the thief and the murderer are taken in their crime. But metaphorically, light dispels the darkness of sin. And God gives darkness to the conscience of the wicked. He turns them over to darkness and blackness of conscience. But of course, we can't talk about the beauty of light without thinking about the one who came into the world who is the light of the world, the one who spoke light into existence, our Savior, the Son of Righteousness who rises with healing in His wings. He is the light of God. He lightens us. He lightens our sin, blinded, darkened hearts in the wonderful glory of regeneration. He lightens us now by His Spirit through His Word and through the sacraments. He is our light. He is our joy and our salvation. Yes, and He's dispelling the wicked. And He will break the arm of Satan raised against us. For He has defeated Him. And one day we shall see the full defeat and destruction of Satan. Well, class one is over. God's challenge has begun. The questions are unanswered outside the fact you alone, Lord, are God. And there is none other. By God's awful presence, by God's unanswerable questions, Job is silenced and you and I are silenced. And we should be humbled and brought low at the feet of the trying God. And Dear friends, we are reminded here that we must come to God on His terms. And some of you this morning try to come to God on your terms. You think you've got Him all figured out. You perhaps have convinced yourself because your life is so great, God must be happy with you. Or God's going to bargain with you. Or God will do what you want Him to do. All the while, you, this puny, finite, time-bound, ignorant, impotent, foolish creature are under his wrath and condemnation. You just haven't seen it. Now by his mercy, perhaps by the Spirit, you could get a hint of it here. If you could understand the awful danger of your existence outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Spirit even now give you a dread of God coming against you in the whirlwind and the awful judgment of wrath and condemnation. Because now there's hope. Now there's a cleft. Now there's a safe place. And I beg you right now, 
if you see your condition, if you've been playing games with God, holding Him to your terms, and you see that now He's God and you're a sinful creature, flee to Him by faith and repentance. Come to Him in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He'll never turn you away, regardless of what you've done. And then as His children, learn the lesson He wanted Job to learn. He's God and you're a creature. He won't answer all your questions. He didn't answer Job's questions. You know, that's quite remarkable. At least to me anyway. I like answering questions. He never answered Job's question. He never told Job why. God knew why. The angels knew why. Satan knew why. You and I read the book. We know why. At least in the book, Job did not know why. But he knew who. Whom. And you do too. You've seen a little more of him. And you can trust your life to him with perfect confidence. Regardless of how miserable your life appears to be and how insurmountable your problems and unanswerable are the questions, God loves you if you're in Christ and God is in control. And you can rest. You can rest very safely and comfortably in this God. Amen. We bless you and praise you, Holy Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for this revelation of Yourself. May Your Spirit bless it to each of us according to our needs. For Christ's sake, Amen.